Well, you know, in church, we talk a lot about glorifying God in our lives, right? We, we sing songs about giving Him glory, and we talk about how we were created to glorify Him, which is all true according to the Bible. The fact is, the fact is I've been a believer for so long now that I can say those things without really even having to think too hard about what I'm actually saying because I, I know the drill, right? We know the drill. I go to church faithfully. I spend most of my free time with my Christian friends. I listen to Christian music. I go to Christian events. Uh, I'm pretty sure my dog is a Christian. Uh, <clears throat> I witness to her all the time, by the way. I tell her she's going to meet Jesus if she doesn't stop going to the bathroom on the living room floor. <clears throat> The point is, my lifestyle culturally is very religious, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that in and of itself does not necessarily constitute a life that glorifies God. And yet again, the Bible is very clear about the necessity for Christians to bring Him glory, right? The Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. The apostle Peter said, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, we glorify God in all that we do, 1 Peter 4, 11. And Jesus himself said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. So obviously, glorifying God in all that we do is something that we are expressly taught to do in God's Word. But look, if we don't understand what that actually means, what that actually looks like on a daily basis, then we can very easily go through life believing that we're glorifying God when in reality we're just glorifying religious behavior, <clears throat> which I fear, to be honest, may be true of many in the American church today. And so it really is paramount as followers of Jesus Christ, that we understand what it truly means to glorify God. Because just as we heard in the video, glorifying God does not mean living in an eternal church service, right? What we're doing here today, this is good. This is one aspect of who we are and what we do as followers of Jesus Christ. But there are six other days of the week where we're supposed to be glorifying Him out there, not just in here on Sundays. But there's this trend in the American church, in American church culture, uh, a propensity for a long time now to try and make our lives outside of the church feel like we're inside of the church, even when we're not. Right? And, and by the way, I'm not referring to the organism that is uh, the church, the universal body of believers, because we are in that. We're a part of that 24-7. That never stops because that's who we are. We are the church. I'm referring today to the organization of the local church, which is also very biblical, by the way. But again, it's just one aspect of what we do with our time as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And yet there is this tendency, this trend for some Christians 
to try and create a church-like culture, a kind of a, a bubble for ourselves and our families to live in the other six days a week, even though that's not the culture that we're actually living in. So we look for Christian sports leagues for our kids and Christian companies to do business with and Christian friends to spend all of our time with. And some folks even try to structure their lives and their kids' lives around expressly, distinctly Christian activities. And all the while, it feels like what we're doing is glorifying God. And we might be doing that. We might be. Or we might just be glorifying our American Christian culture. So look, I'm not saying don't enroll your kids in Christian sports leagues or don't do business with companies owned by Christians or don't eat in restaurants that serve Christian chicken because I love all of that too. I do. I especially love the chicken. I'm simply saying let's be very purposeful. Let's pay close attention to what our lives are actually glorifying. Are we glorifying Jesus Christ? Or are we merely glorifying our Christian culture? Because there is a difference. And that difference is what we pledge our allegiance to, what we are beholden to, what is primarily guiding us through this life, which ends up really becoming the code that we live by. Are we living according to what our religious culture tells us is acceptable or not acceptable, or whatever is trending in that religious culture at any given time? Or are we actually living like Jesus lived, according to his word, are we daily being guided by his spirit within us, okay? And that's key to understanding what it means to live like Jesus. It's giving ourselves completely, pledging all of our allegiance to, and allowing ourselves to be wholly guided by the spirit of Christ on a daily basis. Living like Jesus lived actually means being radically obsessed with reflecting his life in ours, which sometimes means going places and being surrounded by people who look nothing like our religious Christian culture. And so it's really important that we have a firm grasp on who he tru- uh, how he truly lived and who he truly was. Again, not according uh, to religious culture or Christian slogans or conservative political platforms or the newest book by the latest trendy Christian author. No, understanding how Jesus actually lived means opening up his word, reading about who he, who he was and what he did and what he taught and how he lived, and then taking that knowledge, that understanding, and intentionally infusing that Christ-like way of living into the way that we live our lives every single day. Whether we're in a church service or a meeting at work or at a party at someone's house who isn't a Christian, right? Look, Jesus went to parties where there was not only alcohol, but where people were getting hammered drunk. In fact, at one point, he made more alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean he endorsed their drunkenness. Not at all. He didn't. But it does mean that living like Jesus will at times lead you to people and places that are utterly devoid of even a hint of Christian culture. And you know what? That's just fine. It's fine because that is the very reason he wants you there. 
so that you can glorify him by living like he lived among the very people who have no concept whatsoever of what glorifying God actually looks like or even means. If we talk about glorifying God with our uh, uh, unchurched, unbelieving friends, you might as well be speaking a foreign language because that is distinctly religious language, which is okay, but it doesn't mean anything to non-religious people. And yet those are the very people who need to see us living God-glorifying lives, not just culturally religious lives. There's a big difference, and so we're going to talk about what it actually means today to live like Jesus lived, not just in what we say, but in what we actually do with our lives on a daily basis, because that is how, that is how we influence the culture around us rather than conforming to the culture around us, even a religious culture. And so we're going to explore this idea of living like Jesus lived as we continue our sermon series today, looking at the life and times of Joseph. So we're going to pick the story up right where we left off the week before Palm Sunday at Genesis chapter 41, and we'll finish out that chapter for today. And after we read this portion, I'll go back and give you a little backstory. So last time we stopped at verse 36. So we'll begin this morning with verses 37 through 45. Let's read it together. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Look, this is a stunning turn of events for Joseph. If you were here for the first part of the chapter, you'll remember that Joseph had been locked up in prison for a crime he didn't commit and left there for over two years with no hope of release except that God gives Pharaoh these two very troubling dreams that none of his advisors, none of his wise men, none of his magicians could interpret for him. And so Pharaoh's cupbearer remembers that when he was in prison, along with the king's baker and Joseph, Joseph interpreted their dreams two years earlier, which came to fruition just as Joseph had said they would. And so this cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph since no one else in all of the land can give Pharaoh any answers. And so upon the cupbearer's description of Joseph and his abilities, Pharaoh promptly orders his staff to bring Joseph to him. And then Joseph not only interprets the dreams to Pharaoh, which tell of an impending and potentially a catastrophic famine upon the land, but Joseph also lays out a plan a detailed plan to help Egypt survive the famine and to actually profit 
through the whole process. And you can read about that in the first half of the chapter. You can also watch the sermon online if you want to go a little deeper into that part of the story. And so now, here as we pick up the story, Pharaoh is responding to Joseph's interpretation of those dreams and to Joseph's strategy for averting the coming disaster. And it is such a brilliant plan that Pharaoh says to his staff, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? In other words, none of you knuckleheads could even interpret my dreams, let alone come up with such an amazing plan to use the coming famine to our advantage. And so he turns to Joseph and says, hey, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. See, Joseph, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Keep in mind, Joseph is a foreign slave accused of a terrible crime and until this moment was largely forgotten in the king's prison, okay? For his life to change this dramatically, this quickly, is really nothing short of miraculous. The fact that he's now second in command of the entire nation of Egypt is really a breathtaking turn of events. So just to put it into perspective, you couldn't get much lower in Egyptian culture than to be a foreign prisoner. And yet, in these few intense moments, Joseph is named vizier of Egypt. That's second in command. We have ancient documents from Egypt that explain exactly what that meant, what that entailed. One in particular from the tomb of Rechmeyer. He was uh, an ancient Egyptian noble and an official in the 18th dynasty of Egypt in the late Bronze Age. And it spells out, that document, the duties of the vizier of Egypt. And there's a quote from that document that says he was the grand steward of all Egypt, which meant all of the activities of the state were under this one man's control. And so in dramatic fashion, Joseph has gone from being counted among the lowest of Egypt's population completely powerless and nearly forgotten to the pinnacle of position and power and respect in Egypt. And as if that weren't enough, there's more. Joseph has given Pharaoh's own signet ring, a sign of his own authority. The people are commanded to bow to him wherever he goes. He's given a wife, the daughter of the high priest of Egypt, which is a marriage of the highest status. You really... If you really stop and think about all this, it seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Pharaoh could have given Joseph his freedom and a big reward for his help and left it at that. That would have been an incredible improvement for Joseph's life. I'm sure he wouldn't have complained. He could have even made Joseph an advisor and kept him on his staff, which again would have been a vastly better situation for Joseph and certainly a great reward for his help. But Pharaoh goes so far beyond what anyone could have ever imagined in that moment. He, he makes this Hebrew slave the most powerful man in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh himself. It seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? Well, there's a reason that Pharaoh did what he did, which he explains in verses 38 and 39. You see, Pharaoh recognizes that there's something very special and very unique, very different from everyone else in Egypt. And Joseph, Pharaoh, a pagan king, 
recognizes the spirit of a holy God which was in Joseph and guiding his life, which speaks volumes, not about Pharaoh, but about Joseph. Okay, there are many ways in which Joseph foreshadows the Christ, and this is one of them. And if we are to live like Jesus lived, then it should be said of us as well. Living like Jesus lived means living lives that are radically dependent upon his spirit. Every single day, when, when things are going well and when things are not going so well, we must live with a radical dependency upon the Spirit of Christ if we are to truly glorify God in how we live, just like Joseph did. But actually living like that, that demands a radical level of commitment and trust and faith. And I'll just tell you, that's not automatic for most of us. Look, there's a difference between being a cultural Christian and being a committed Christian. Cultural Christianity promotes religious behavior. Committed Christianity promotes radical behavior. And the difference is profoundly noticeable by everyone, even those who know nothing about Jesus Christ or who he is or how he lived, which is exactly why Pharaoh had such a profound response to Joseph here, because he recognized that there was a radical dependence in Joseph's life on the Spirit of God, which was not only unbelievably powerful, but it was extremely uncommon, right? Pharaoh said, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God. Okay. In Egyptian culture, it was very uncommon to find someone who lived that way, just like it is in our culture today, which is why we take notice of people who actually live like Jesus lived, because it is powerful, and it is uncommon to find someone who lives with that kind of radical dependence on the Holy Spirit every single day, day by day, moment by moment. That's how Jesus lived. Right when he was being tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness, Luke 4.1 says that Jesus was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. That is how he was able to withstand the enemy, by living with a radical dependence upon the Spirit of God. Luke 14 and 15 says that he taught in the power of the Spirit in the synagogues. Luke 10.21, we see Jesus rejoice and pray in the Holy Spirit. His disciples learned to do the same. In Acts 4.8, as Peter and John were arrested and dragged before the religious council to answer for their Christ-like way of living, Luke says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he answered their accusers. You see, there's no two ways about it. Living like Jesus lived means living with a radical dependence upon his spirit every day in the big things and in the little things which is uncommon, but it's also uncommonly powerful, and it is one of the keys to truly learning how to glorify God in all that we do, all right? It's far less about being faithful to a religious culture and far more about being dependent upon the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. But I just wonder, how much do we really do that? I ask myself that question. How much do we really do that? Honestly, how dependent upon the Holy Spirit are we each morning when we wake up? How much time do we spend each day seeking his guidance for our daily lives in the big things and even in the little things? 
How much weight do we give to the voice of the Spirit in our lives compared to the financial markets when it comes to planning our future? How much do we really trust Him with our relationships and our bank accounts and our plans and our dreams? How much faith do we have that His Spirit will actually lead us through our most difficult challenges in our lives? Jesus knew that His disciples would be persecuted and abused and suffer at the hands of those who were not His followers. And so He told His disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In other words, you don't have to pre-plan for every single possible eventuality in your life because hard times are going to come from time to time and you won't always be able to predict them. So don't worry and fret and spend all your time and resources and energy trying to plan for every possibility. No, instead, I want you to trust me and let my spirit guide you through it. I'll tell you what to say. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you where to go. I'll tell you how to handle it, even hour by hour if I have to. But I'll tell you, doing that is going to require a radical dependency on the Holy Spirit. Joseph's entire life, while being kidnapped and sold and enslaved and in prison, brought before the king, it was all characterized by a radical dependency on the Spirit of God. In fact, just to highlight the precarity of Joseph's situation when he was brought before Pharaoh, the danger that he was actually in in that moment, just being there standing before the king. The Egyptian name that Pharaoh gives Joseph is Zephenath Paneah. In Egyptian, that means the God has spoken and he will live. Which begs the question, what would Pharaoh have done if Joseph had not heard from God in that moment of Pharaoh's great need? I presume Joseph would not have been permitted to continue living. But Joseph, who expressed his radical dependence on God back in verse 16 after Pharaoh says to him, I've, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph said, no, no, no. It, isn't, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And he says it again, that this, this message was from God after he interprets the dream, right? He says all that right before he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He says, God is the one. Any good that comes out of this meeting, it's going to come from God, right? Joseph's life was characterized by this radical dependency on the Spirit of God, which brings tremendous glory, by the way, to the Father when we live like that, which is what we see in this encounter with Pharaoh, as this pagan king who doesn't know the first thing about God immediately recognizes that the Spirit of God is with Joseph. There's just no way around it. If we are going to glorify God in our lives, then we're going to have to learn to radically depend on His Spirit to guide us and teach us and strengthen us and encourage us and empower us day by day, even at times hour by hour. Let's keep reading. Verses 46 through 52. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. 
He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph goes out from Pharaoh to travel the land of Egypt and implement the plan that God has given him to provide for all the people. And just as interpreted by Joseph through Pharaoh's dreams, the land produces plentifully for seven years, so much so that Joseph and his staff quit recording the amounts of grain gathered in each city from the fields around those cities because it was too much for them to keep track of. It literally just became unfeasible to keep up with the vast quantities of food that was being stockpiled. And so not only is Joseph's professional life now going about as good as it possibly could, but so too there was great blessing in his personal life. His wife bears for him two sons who represent the result for Joseph of living a life radically dependent on God. Right? The first he names Manasseh, which means one who causes to forget. And of course, Joseph, after being uh, abducted, sold, enslaved, imprisoned over the course of 13 long years, he's finally able to let go of what must have been tremendous pain and sorrow for all the hardship that he's had to endure from his family all the way through. But God is faithful to bring Joseph out of his suffering and into great blessing as he's learned to radically depend on the Spirit of God in his life. And then he names the second son Ephraim, which means twice fruitful, because as Joseph explains it, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, which is yet another illusion to Jesus himself who brought the most glory to the Father when he was surrounded by those who were most unlike him. In other words, living like Jesus lived means living a life that is radically fruitful no matter our surroundings. Right? We're not exempt from producing good spiritual fruit in our lives when we find ourselves in unfavorable surroundings or a culture that is hostile toward the gospel. Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Right? This was Egypt. This was definitely Joseph's land of affliction. This was the place where Joseph was sold into slavery. This was the place where he was wrongly accused and framed by his employer's wife. This was the place where he was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. This was the place where he was forgotten and left in prison even after helping Pharaoh's own high officials there. So far, Egypt has not been very kind to Joseph, and yet here he is engulfed by a pagan culture, married to the pagan high priest's daughter, given a pagan name and the highest position in a pagan government, and yet he is wildly fruitful for God, even in the harshest of environments, the land of his affliction. Joseph was fruitful in Potiphar's house. He was fruitful in prison, and now he's fruitful as a leader in Egypt. Just like Jesus, Joseph was so in tune with the Spirit of God working in his life that he was able to be fruitful even in the harshest surroundings. And I talk to people often 
who are stuck in these sort of toxic environments where they, where they work. And they'll say things to me like, I, I can't be all that God wants me to be as long as I'm stuck in this job. If I could just find a place where there are other Christians, other people who think like I do, then I could really be productive, fruitful for God. But look, I'm telling you that very often the opposite is true. When our surroundings are favorable, easy, low pressure, non-threatening, it is then that most people become unproductive, unfruitful, because there isn't a lot of need to radically depend on the Spirit of God when everything is easy. And yet when we're engulfed in a culture that is not friendly to us, that is not receptive to our message, that is not interested in our religious culture, it is then that we are often forced to either give in or radically depend on the Spirit of Christ moment by moment, which is exactly when God is most glorified in us. Okay, when, when all the cards seem to be stacked against you, when there seems to be affliction everywhere you turn, instead of using that as an excuse to be spiritually unfruitful, use it as an opportunity to be wildly fruitful as you allow the Spirit of God to lead you. And not only will you bring glory to God in those situations, but you'll experience untold blessings, even to the point that you can let go of the hurt of the past and live in the joy of the present when you're radically fruitful for Christ, even when you find yourself in the most difficult circumstances and surroundings. That's what Joseph did. That's what Jesus did. In the face of the greatest adversity, their spiritual fruitfulness increased exponentially. Can we say the same for ourselves? When we're faced with great difficulty, with great uncertainty, with great danger, with great risk, with great opposition, do we become more fruitful for Christ? Or do we shrink back and just try to weather the storm? Because living like Jesus lived means being radically fruitful no matter our surroundings. Let's, let's finish the story for today. Verse 53, we'll read to the end of the chapter. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt. And moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So the famine comes just as Joseph said it would, and it extends far beyond the borders of Egypt, okay? Uh, each year, heavy rains in the southern Sudan would cause the Nile to flood for three months, which was necessary for Egyptian agriculture to produce its crops. But some years there was inadequate rainfall in the Sudan, which meant the Nile would not flood, which doomed the harvest for that year. But in this particular seven-year drought, not only did the southern Sudan not receive the rain needed to flood the Nile, 
but there was no rain in Palestine or Syria as well, which meant the entire region and surrounding areas had no food. And, and the, as the years passed, the famine became increasingly worse. In fact, in verse 56, where it says the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt, that phrase was severe is the Hebrew word kazak, which means to strengthen or to harden. In other words, the famine was becoming progressively worse. It was strengthening. It was hardening over that seven-year period. So make no mistake, this was a famine like no other. But because of Joseph allowing himself to be dependent upon the leading of the Spirit of God, he was able to produce and store up enough grain for all who came to Egypt for help to the point that Egypt became the center for relief for the entire Middle East, which plays heavily actually into the next act of this drama, which we'll look at next week. But for now, we'll continue to look at the parallels between Joseph and Jesus Christ. And there are so many of them. In fact, we don't have time to go through them all. But in this last part of the chapter, we see Joseph, a God-fearing Hebrew, living in a foreign land, surrounded by pagan people, in a pagan culture, who are all looking to him for answers. And what does he do? He does, he does just what Jesus did. He blesses the people around him by meeting their needs, okay? Living like Jesus lived means radically blessing the world around you. That's what Jesus did every day. He said to his disciples, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Wow. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Luke 6, 27 through 36. That's a hard word. But look, as Christians, we're not supposed to be at enmity with the unbelieving world. Do you know that? Set apart, yes. Set against, no. You understand the difference? we are most certainly to be against the ways of this world, right? The Apostle Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Romans 12, 2. We're to be radically different from the culture around us, and because of that, Jesus actually promised us that we'd pay a price. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, John 15, 18. So we don't compromise the truth to satisfy the politically correct sensibilities of our secular culture. No, but that does not mean we are set against the unbelieving human souls who God has called us to lead to him. Now we're supposed to love them 
and blessed them with everything in us. Verse 57 says that all the earth, not just the Hebrews, all the earth was blessed and provided for by Joseph. We're supposed to radically bless the world around us. But listen, if we insulate ourselves by living exclusively within a culturally religious bubble, how can we ever be a blessing to those in the world? Jesus went to the places where the unbelieving people were. He went there to share his message. And while he was there, he took the time and effort to bless them. If we're going to live like Jesus lived, we have to be willing to go out into the places where the people are and not just the places that are culturally Christian or expressly religious, but the places that are completely devoid of religion, even a hint of Christian culture, even places where people might be hostile toward the gospel. And we're to go there to share the message of Christ without a doubt. But while we're there, we had better be a blessing as well. In fact, Christians should be known for the way that we radically bless other people, even those who don't believe what we believe. There's a name for that. It's called living like Jesus lived. It's what each of us is called to do. St. Augustine put it this way. A Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. I think there's a real danger for those of us who live in a religious culture to go through life believing that we're glorifying God when in reality we're just glorifying religious behavior. And I'm just telling you, I don't want to look back at my own life one day only to realize that I've allowed myself to become so comfortable in my religious culture that I failed to have any real influence in the non-religious culture that surrounds me. Everywhere that Joseph went, he influenced the pagan culture around him. Everywhere that Jesus went, he influenced the unbelieving culture around him, and they did it by being radically dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God every day, which meant they were able to be radically fruitful, productive in ministry to others, even when in a hostile environment, which meant they were able to radically bless the world around them, which ultimately meant they were able to have a great influence in the culture right where God put them. All right, it's time for the church, the other six days of the week, to step out of our comfortable, culturally Christian routines and be willing to go some other places and meet some other people and have some other conversations than the ones that we're used to and comfortable with. It's time for the church to make some honest changes in our lives to the point that we actually have to radically depend upon the Holy Spirit for guidance on a daily basis. It's time for the church to become radically fruitful in our communities and in our jobs and in our daily interactions to the point, listen, that people actually experience the Spirit of Christ working through us in tangible and undeniable ways. Pharaoh couldn't deny that the Spirit of God was working in Joseph's life. That's what happens when we radically bless other people, all the while giving all the glory to God. That's how Joseph lived. That's how Jesus lived. That's how I want us to live. 
our lives. I want us to be known as people who live like Jesus lived. Let's pray.